Hello and welcome to Unfinished Unpublished. My name's Emily Anderson and I'm joined today by Kevin Frediani. Kevin is the curator of the Botanic Garden at the University of Dundee. Before that, his career has been hugely varied. To name just a couple of his previous roles, he's managed the Amsterdam Botanic Garden and he was also the first curator of plants at London Zoo. He's won a ton of awards, including for his work at the Chelsea Flower Show. He took a gorilla exhibit to Chelsea, and we'll be talking about that later in the programme, along with lots of other fascinating gardening and sustainability subjects. So all that it remains for me to say is that if you have an unfinished or unpublished project that you'd like to talk about, you can email me at unfinished.unpublished at gmail.com. So I wanted to start off by asking you about your current work, which you've said to me involves enabling a living lab and finding ways to give the botanic garden away as well. Could you explain what those two strands of your work involve? Uh, absolutely. The concept of a living lab based in within a botanic garden in the centre of Dundee is, is a concept that I've been playing with for a while during, during my own journey within gardens, trying to work out how do you make sense of this really important work that needs to happen in community so that we can live sustainably and still allow development of sorts of human civilization that while we create and maintain the spaces where nature can be. It's a, a challenge that we haven't been able to address so far. And so within the botanic gardens that I now manage at Dundee, We've created a living lab with the researchers in the various schools, academic schools within the mm -hmm. university, to bring together PhD students within the garden environment rather than within a classroom or a, a built environment to look at those issues that address education for sustainable development, uh, nature-based solutions to make happy, sustainable cities in the future, and and on our own sites to develop what what we're calling a well-being campus. You know, let's okay. let's start with changing what we can locally and then share that knowledge. So that's that's the living lab. In terms of the second question, you'll have to ask me that again because I've lost it. Um, that was about finding ways to give the botanic garden away. So that feeds in really nicely to that next stage because if you think about the botanic garden it doesn't sit in isolation it's it sits within the university structure and I manage seven sites under my, my role mm. and so if we can use the botanic garden as a latent reserve of plants growing within an urban environment already which you know they tell us the ecosystem services if we can only evaluate them so that's the work I've been doing now to then help inform the better ways that we can manage our landscapes where the students and staff are and if we mm. if we do that in a nested way i can then share that with the local authorities that are struggling trying to manage with very few public resources you know this this green space that we're all finding during covid and um and benefiting from but actually work out how to do that sustainably with an action that puts the social system back within a natural environmental system. And then that practice can be nested within a national or international context as we share through our, our university connectivity. That's the, that's the living lab in a nutshell, if you like, um, embedded within finding a way of giving it away. Because at the end of the day, you can't, I learned very early on that it's no point in going out and collecting the last orchid, bringing it mm. back into one of these collections and having it in a case where I say, come and have a look at this. 
which many of our botanic gardens are, do. They basically show what we're conserving that's being lost in the world when the habitat's just being destroyed because of the way we're living as a community, global community, unsustainably. Because uh, there's lots of last orchids, isn't there? But what I'm trying to do is find a way to give it away so others value it. And then that in turn can become something the community wants to conserve rather than lose, which is what's going on at the moment. So the work that you described there is very large in scope, both physically in the sense that you mentioned you were working across several different sites and also in its concept. So this idea about how to be sustainable, how to allow development, how to give the garden back to the community. And I wondered if you could give a a kind of a concrete example of what it is that you do to give people a clearer picture. Yeah, I appreciate I appreciate how difficult it must be to sort of coming cold and hear these these concepts but I think at, at its heart if you think about what a botanic garden does or in terms of its education its conservation of biodiversity based around plants and the habitats they afford and then in terms of uh, finding a way to share that not just as a visitor experience but make mm. a difference in the world I can't think of a better example of that than a colleague that worked with me in the zoo community at Bristol Zoo who gave away seeds of a, of a group of plants, the pot marigold, and all their different varieties to groups in community who were working, I'd say, in an old people's home, in schools and private individuals. And all he requested was they grew them without any potential to hybridise with any other calendula so that you could keep that species alive on your windowsill mm-hmm. or in your garden. And then at the end of the year, when you harvest the seeds, to give him half of them back. Okay. And then by that group working together, they actually are involved in one of the only examples in the world where we've been able to conserve an annual Mm. plant. Because usually we require a population of at least 50 or 200 plants to do Mm. that. And if I planted 200 trees, I've run out of all my space in the garden straight away. So there's a limit, a confined limit on what we can really achieve in these uh, gardens. And and what I'm trying to find a way is, is giving it away, not just the genetic material, so that people in community can grow that and work with me to conserve it. But really the the ideas of giving away the inspiration mm. to do something in your life that has a, a contribution as part of a community and a bigger impact that comes from it. And we can use plants and landscapes to do that. And a second example I'll give you mm. is one that we started yesterday, which is we've launched a campaign to encourage people to commit their front or back gardens to grow a little bit more wildlife friendly, just a little bit. And by posting on our Facebook program, their postcode of where they are, we will map the beginning of an urban conservation program across the city using people's front garden. So that can be growing a a non-native species, but it's a pollinator. So you could still be beautiful Mm. or a native species, you know, rewilding your lawn a little bit. And it's called Rewilding Dundee. You know, it's part of a, a bigger program that's that's going on nationally. There's a bumblebee one and there's a plant one. But this is actually just focusing on our locality. And I think that's a good way that we can give away an idea, but it has a bigger impact than just if we were doing that in our own patch. Sure. That's very, it's highly collaborative. Is that one of the things that you most enjoy about your work? Absolutely. I, I would say that it's been participatory or about co-production and co, co-design over the years. Mm. I've not really appreciated that until recently. And and I've been interested in not just gardening. I mean, I started my career with 
no qualifications and coming into gardening on the tools very quickly finding like a light bulb that I was absolutely inspired by these plants. I didn't even know they had Latin names. And the Latin names related to Greek and Roman stories of old, which then took you around the world. Plant collectors collecting these plants and, and bringing them back, often putting their own lives at risk so that we could enjoy them in the garden. And then that whole sense of culture and placemaking. I then learned through that work after I did my first degree, which is in plant sciences, um, about community mm. and I had no idea you know about how we how communities work and how they don't work and the dysfunction that's around them and how important communication is and and so I studied sustainable development and integrated environmental management mm. to understand a little bit more about that and then this this emergent these emergent properties that we talk about resilience what's that all that about sustainability they sort of caught me and so notions of culture community resilience and sustainability drive me in the way that I think about curating a collection which you know as a role as a curator as a gardener that's evolved I now find myself in a position where I can produce an argument in a space mm. through plants through art in gardens and through placemaking which engages a community and just helps them think differently about these that the role of plants in our world or the role of people in in the natural world you know how does that all how does that all work or not work I was fascinated by what you said there about gardening making an argument and gardening as art. Is that how you would define it? I, I think it can be. I mean, yeah. you look at Royal Horticultural Society and, and the Chelsea Flower Show mm. that we used to watch on TV as, as it was being projected. Now we look back at and think of one of those. It's an art with four dimensions because <laughs> it's never finished. Yeah. Time allows these uh, natural organisms or cultivated organisms to to grow and embellish and improve upon what we do as a, as humans but that juxtaposition of plants with hard hard landscaping is definitely art in its in its highest form it's probably one of the best art forms that we've mm. contributed to in the UK globally but it's something that's evolving yeah I love it for that which brings us quite neatly round to the idea of not finishing things or things constantly being ongoing in gardens because one of the reasons I've been very keen to speak to a gardener is that it was pointed out to me that the work of gardening is always ongoing and always developing. So it never really gets finished. And it sounds like that's probably a view of gardening that you would share. Absolutely. And I think they go through ebbs and flows. I, I can remember there's a really nice metaphor that, that helps think about this in terms of the living aspect of it. Mm. If you think about an oak tree in a landscape, it grows for 300 years, it rests for 300 years. Mm gracefully declines for 300 years well that lifetime one lifetime tree time for the for the trees is multi-generational mm. 10 generations for us and gardens are a bit like that we inherit them from those that came before them and we steward them into the future for someone else to take forward and in my own role that's happened quite quickly I've I've had a number of roles within gardening both as a gardener as a supervisor as a manager and then later as a curator yeah and what I found is that Although I, I start projects like the world's first production vertical farm mm. and I take it to a level where it can make a connection with people and then I look to give it away because you recognise actually, like all things in life, there are people who do this better than you do. And if you're a, a starter, not a finisher, you need to recognise that. And if you're someone who, because the other thing that I've found in my in my career is that gardens go through ebbs and, and floods and, and as they 
as one person can take them to ascension in terms of takes an autocratic mind to create a landscape mm. you can't manage them by committee and at some point they will go out of flavor or favor all their resources will go and then it takes another type of leader mm. in that role to find a way of bringing that back and finding the potential and I love that I love that potential you know I love finding something that's where people are talking about talking about it in deficit and then to find flip that on its head and said okay what are the opportunities here and within the answer you just mentioned that various different people can take on different approaches to a garden as they come to it and I read in a comment that you made about your own work that you think that egos should be left at the door and that you don't mind who gets the credit I'm also speaking to another gardener for this podcast who said that she was attracted to it partly because it allowed her to be behind the scenes do you think that's a common impulse in your field or or is that something you share that kind of desire for anonymity yeah no I, I think we often come into it because we ironically prefer to be alone on our own to some extent mm. or it's be in nature and I think that's not unusual I certainly found that when I left school last thing I wanted to do was be put into a public domain I would have never done this when I was 16 yeah and and actually I still have no greater pleasure than weeding a border during the daytime mm. or planting a border and then thinking to myself at the end of it the reward it's never gonna it's never gonna be better than when you first leave when you first leave it if it's a weeded border or that I won't won't see the future potential of this if it's a tree I'm planting yeah. it'll be others but to know that that will bring happiness to somebody who comes across it serendipity you know they'll just find it by a happy accident mm. that reward of knowing that you're doing something for others who won't know you but they just enjoy that place and time and it might make a difference to them that's in the past brought me pleasure from what I've received from others and now I hope it brings pleasure to others so I think yes there is definitely something in there we learn later on that somebody has to put their head a bit above the parapet mm. and stand up shout about something so it gets noticed that's the world we live in but I, you'd far rather let the let the landscape and plants do their talking if you could so it sounds to me then that even though your work in gardening is always ongoing and perhaps we could say it is always unfinished but it still sounds like you can sit back at the end of the day and get a sense of satisfaction out of what you've done absolutely every day and going through that now in, in terms of leading a garden I, I rarely get on the tools myself it, that ends up being at home in my own garden mm. but what I see is that an extension if I can make sure the others have got the resources in place in the right direction then I can achieve more when I was managing 50 gardeners can you imagine mm. that every year one year of their time five times 50 is achieving more than I can do in a lifetime yeah. that's an amazing position to be in quite a privileged position to be in. You've already mentioned that you quite like starting projects or that in the past you have started projects and then moved away from them some of which you've already mentioned, you talked about your work um, in zoos, for example, and you sent me a longish list of these different projects that you have begun. And there was a few that I wanted to ask you about. Well, I'm interested in all of them, but let's let's start off then with your work at Paynton Zoo. You said that you had been establishing vertical farming there. Could you explain what that is? Yeah, vertical farming is a, is a concept. First, promoted by a guy called Dixon Despommier back in um, 1999, where he, he did an exercise with his students suggesting, if we could grow food where people live in our cities, mm. wouldn't, wouldn't that free up land outside where 
wild plants and animals could be. And if we looked at all the rooftops or all the vacant buildings or car parks that we've got in our urban centres, could we grow plants where people live more effectively using less water and less nutrients and hydroponically that's possible and if you think about fish you can link that into the system and the waste of the fish in the water mm. creates nutrients the plants can use and that in turn the plants can clean them up and then as we harvest them and eat them they as they clean up that water that can go back and be a healthy solution for the fish again mm-hmm. so he explored these as an idea, but it took a little while before that concept came through into something people were willing to trial. And I was lucky when I arrived back in the UK after working in Amsterdam in the Netherlands, where I'd been putting a glass house on top of a building, okay. something a bit radical, because there's, you know, space is a premium in cities. Yeah. And if you, rather than taking a, a new site, if you could stick it up on the top, it makes sense. So we did that in the Botanic Gardens there. And I came back with this this idea of doing something a little bit different and trying to show the visitors to the zoo that the wild con specific animals would be better better served if we thought a little bit more about where our food came from. Mm-hmm. And I met this company trying to do a commercial version of a vertical farm, growing food, if you think about a tree, growing food on trays that go up, where they they moved on a, a, a like a railway line, okay. an aerial line that came from above. Yeah. And they collected water at a station, a feeding station and nutrients. And then they moved around into the sunlight so that during the course of the day, rather than having 10 plants per square meter, if we're growing lettuces, we could grow 120 plants on the three meter high system. So you can imagine the quantity. We could also do it because we were using hydroponics. We could do it with less water than you would have to feed into a field Mm. because fields are quite inefficient in terms of the way that soil water is lost to gravity and plants transpire water. We have that in common within a, within a vertical farm. But there's also this um, uh, evaporation from the surface, and you can reduce that with hydroponics in these systems. So you can improve water use efficiency, and water is one of the world's scarcest resources. We can free up land, mm-hmm. and land is one of those spaces which we're all competing with, with 10 billion people in the on the planet, but still trying to create spaces for wildlife. And so this as a public exhibit at Paint Zoo seemed a really great way of doing mm. it and plus they'd pay for it so I didn't have to <laughs> and and but I could do the primary research because I had a plant science first degree yeah. so I said I'd do that and then I tell the world if it works and I tell the world if it didn't work and over the course of the next five years we had a, a you know quite a ride unfortunately the first iteration of a technology isn't mm-hmm. isn't the best one and the company wouldn't learn from what we were telling them mm. about what didn't work on the system and we could improve it and so they were more interested in selling shares however I found a way to give that technology away and work with others, not the specifics of that, their intellectual property. I don't want to say that I give that away, mm. but just in terms of the technology, infuse others. And so that project, you know, rather than me carrying it on commercially, looking to make millions, which wasn't my interest. My interest was about public engagement, about conservation and about making a difference. And we found that loads of people that are interested in it. And I'm glad to say I could support loads of people mm. out there to to do their own vertical farm. And I think they're pretty well in every city you can think of around the world now. Brilliant, brilliant. That sounds great. We should probably just define what hydroponics is in case people don't know who are listening. Yeah, so, so hydroponics means water working. So effectively, it's growing without soil. You, you all do it. You probably don't notice it. Mm. But if you're growing in peat which I hope you're not doing these days, but if you ever grew in peat bags, tomatoes at home, 
that's not soil you're you're adding the water and the nutrients into it because it's pretty well in there if you grow in clay boil balls if you think any of the house plants they grow in a hydroponic system or if you root mm. one of your cuttings in a pot on your windowsill <laughs> uh, that's a hydroponic system as well so but most of our fresh salad crops are grown that way so most of your lettuces your tomatoes yeah very little that sea soil these days clever yeah um, and you mentioned when you were describing that project about the project partly being a matter of doing research and you had a background in plant science. And it strikes me that a lot of the work that you've done combines the academic and the highly practical and the managerial. Do you quite enjoy having that range of different skills and elements to a project or is the one part of the work that you prefer? Yeah, I think anybody who comes in into gardening very quickly learns that we we make mistakes mm. <laughs> and you learn from those mistakes next year you, you don't come with a full full you know you don't get a qualification and come out a qualified gardener yeah. you're actually at your best at the end of your working life probably the last day that you work is probably your best day's work interesting because um yeah we learn through those mistakes and through ours and others experiences so definitely i i think that combination of the art the science and the practice of gardening and horticulture has been something that I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed. And I can't imagine doing another career. The beauty of it is if, I, if I'm interested in a different aspect, I can go, <laughs> I can turn five degrees around a circle. I can still do the job I'm yeah. doing, but I can look at it through a different facet, uh, a different face, and I can see it in a completely different light. And you've also worked in lots of different places. You mentioned just now that you'd put a glass house on top of a building in Amsterdam. And I know that you've worked there and various other places establishing collection plans for botanic and heritage gardens. And you said that those two were projects that you've started and then passed on. Yes, absolutely. Um, I mean, it, I should say something about how I came to these projects yeah. because my work is usually a sort of direct reflection of, of gardens and landscapes in a state of change or flux often where others are looking at the deficits and they're looking for someone to help find the opportunities and mm -hmm. and I've been lucky enough in my career to build up a bit of a reputation of of uh, coming to places that aren't necessarily re realizing their full potential and helping turn that around mm -hmm. so in Amsterdam we'd got a garden one of the world's oldest botanic gardens which had a huge history it's like a palimpsest uh, mm. if you look at one of these old masters paintings and peel back the layers of paint you find another hidden gem underneath it from the apothecaries gardens of 1638 where they were trying to train people to identify plants that would be formed in the early medicines yeah. through to the voc exploring the world and bringing back plants <laughs> from this um the opening up of the seas and finding mm. other other um claiming territories yeah. let's put it into that context in in their in the in the early days of their com commonwealth and then and then the scientific inquiry where we started to look at not only the relationships between these plants but the economic uses of them and how we might better repurpose them in in what we call ghost acres now around the world where we we grow foods to transport back to feed our hungry cities here mm. on an island that couldn't po couldn't possibly feed 60 million people and yet it, we live very happily because we're using these ghost acres elsewhere but the at the heart of that was this exploration this uh, claiming of plant material and then repurposing it through botanic gardens and then coming up to the sort of more modern times with 
education, conservation, and amenity in terms of public gardens. All of those layers are there. Mm. And so at Amsterdam, what I did is came in at a point in time where they got all this history. They were sat on money. Mm. They'd been no longer required by the university as a teaching garden because they were looking at plant science at cell and molecular level. Mm -hmm. And so the university stopped, said, we don't want to fund you anymore. They'd set up a charity, got a lot of money, and we're looking for what they do next. And I said, look to your past to inform your future because you are at the centre of the, all these stories. Mm. Over the, I was there for just over, well, just under three years, two, two and a bit years, but three years in th three seasons. And we transformed 50% uh, of their landscape. And we changed that landscape so that it not only unified up as you look down on it as an aerial view, so the actual uh, the mass and voids of the landscape, to use those technical terms, made sense in terms of visually. But on the ground, we recreated the original 1638 Snippendal Garden, but we did it in a modern way. We yeah. created a, a Grota Weifer, which is the, um, the pond where people get married and have <laughs> taken. So it became a honeypot. And we took yeah. a an institution that had a local and loyal following to a, a visitor number where we were actually thinking of putting in ticketing because we had too many visitors coming. Hmm. It's only one hectare and it grows hmm. five and a half thousand plants, but pretty well every house plant in the world has gone through there. But at the end of it, of those two years, my, my role was done. You need yeah. a Dutch person to run that Dutch botanic garden, not me. And And there was an opportunity that came up over a coffee for me to come back to where I'd grown up in Devon and run uh, run the gardens at Painton Zoo. And, and I spoke to the director then and said, look, I know that you wanted me to stay for 10 years. They wanted me to stay. Yeah. I said, I've, I, I think we've actually done our work here. Okay. And after a few tears and conversation, she agreed to let me go. And, uh, mm. and, and I think actually they're better for it because the people who came after me had a better context with the Dutch culture. Mm. They're embedded in that and they they have taken that it's to another level of integration than I ever would have done. That's interesting that you're talking about the importance of knowledge of a specific culture, because I know a while back you mentioned that you thought the UK had made a big contribution to gardening as an art. What is the importance of cultural knowledge then if you're gardening a specific place, do you think? The culture of a, of a garden, the genus loci, if we go back to the Greek, origins of mm. that word the spirit of place gardens are a juxtaposition between those that make them and places they are they're residing in mm. so in in terms of that i would say that it's fundamental but it's often overlooked and part of that realignment that i found when i come into a garden is is finding that spirit of place mm. and then retuning it to the times that we live in because they it evolves it changes uh, it adapts. If you look at successful institutions, they have relevance in their time, but they have deep, deep roots. They're radical in that respect of the Latin word of root. <laughs> They're ra radical in terms of they go back to former times. That's this cultural aspect that's important within a landscape. You couldn't make something which is uh, is a throwaway garden. Contextually, it would be forgotten and therefore had no longevity. And as I said before, suggested, gardens as art need an emotional connection with an audience. There's somebody else there. There's viewers to this who experience it by immersing themselves within it. You can't just enjoy it from afar. You have to get in and touch it, smell it, see it through the seasons and get that whole experience of what a garden is. And is that a sense of creating a whole experience related to one of your other projects, which was 
described by you as immersive landscapes at London and Whipsnade zoos? So I'd, I'd just been running Windsor Great Park and I've been doing this project, looking after the old, the, you know, the oldest living oak trees in the UK up to 1100 years old and there's three and a half thousand of them. And, Gosh. and uh, I had this wonderful job, wonderful job. I thought I was going to be there until I, I retired. And and I, I through bats and trees, I got interested and started collaborating with people at, at the Zoological Society of London. Okay. And the director approached me and said, would I be interested in becoming the first curator at London Zoo of the gardens? They'd had head gardeners, but they'd never formed a botanic garden as part of their collections. Okay. Wow, you don't have to ask twice, but they <laughs> did actually, because at first I said, I don't like zoos, which you can imagine how that went down to a zoo director. Sure. But Chris, West, Chris West was a visionary and he said, actually, that's why we need somebody like you, someone who will question us. And what we want to do is share the lands- same landscape and not the same space with the animals the visitors have come to see. That's the definition of immersion. Okay. And that concept stuck with me. And I thought, wow, you know, can you imagine creating analog habitats that not only enrich the captive animals' time, so it improves their health and well-being, mm. which you can measure, and they do measure within zoos, but it also can immerse the visitors so they, they share the same landscape but not the same space. They can soften, as if you think about the concepts of hard architecture, these institutional buildings we create in zoos and in prisons and in schools and in hospitals that we can sanitize and clean out and soften them with plants, then that's got to be an amazing opportunity. And I I spent three wonderful years spending time, money, building a team, curating a collection that not only immersed the visitors, but we could eat the view. We created opportunities for browse to feed in, enrichment for the animals. And we, we had a ball and even went to Chelsea Flower Show and won a silver medal for a gorilla exhibit. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, but, you know, as part of a team. And, and I think there there's where I learned that thing about what I'm talking about now is fronting work. Mm. I'm not talking about actually doing it. The work is actually done by a whole group of others, heroes that you'll never hear of and see because they're, they're happier with their hands in mud and their bums in the air. But they, uh, they collectively created some absolutely amazing amazing landscapes yeah that was good did you say that it was a gorilla exhibit at Chelsea yeah 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 so that if you go to London Zoo those of your listeners who've been to London Zoo and seen the gorilla exhibit yeah at the beginning of that there used to be the old Sir Bell's pavilion there these dated antiquarian um, structures where the the primate collection was held within them and it did look more like a prison than it did a zoo and what we did is completely took that down refaced it used the back of house facilities which were still functional but Mm. then created a front face where the gorillas could live in a bay and a bay is this if you go to the tropics and you see the gorillas they they basically sit in a fruit bowl where they can grab their food from around them (laughs) and we created that type of an analogous habitat for them there where they would better live breed interrelate as a community and and then created a moat around it so they couldn't get out obviously mm. into the public realm so this this landscape works across levels so your sight lines see behavior and see animals in a in an environment which is more inducive to their their wild habitat but recognizing their in captivity at the same time allowing the animals to look out and see humans at a lower level so they're yeah. not threatened by them or not see them at all which is mm. even better so there's this this immersion works two ways it works from the animals out 
and it works from the humans in. We could even go a little bit further. And in the sward, we introduced plants which could potentially give zoopharmacosis, which is this concept of animals self-medicating, but okay. not so that we'd undermine the the work of the vets because they're always worried about uh, <laughs> introducing plants that could be toxic. But these are things that could enrich their time in captivity, but mm. they could also in exhibit natural behaviours. And if I may, I'll sort of deviate because I was enthralled in that world. I learned so much about the animals which are part of the plant relationships. I was going to ask you about that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's the work of a guy called Robert Hoffman in mm. in um, Japan who studies chimpanzees in the wild. And he writes this wonderful paper. It was in, in the 80s stroke 90s. He was studying a population of wild chimpanzees, following them. And he, he'd noted they were using 120 plants that they seemed to know and recognize. He looked at one of the leading um, matriarchs in the, in the camp that hang off one day. It looked like it wasn't very well. Mm. And he saw it take a plant, a leaf from a plant that he didn't recognize with trichomes on, you know, these hairs on the underside of the leaves with little hooks on the end of yeah. them. It folded the leaf up and it swallowed it whole. He went over and studied the stool and in the in the stool he found that leaf, took it back to the lab, looked underneath it, and he realized that the trichomes had worms on them. And the actual chimpanzees had been reducing their worm burden by swallowing wow. this whole. Now we at Whipsnade put in Boraginaceae plants that have very similar trichomes on the base of them anyone that knows it if you take a borage plant and rub it on your face it mm. feels rough like sandpaper mm -hmm. that's the, what the trichomes do we had an msc student watching the chimps that are in this new habitat that we created with these wildflowers in the lawn watching them fold up leaves and swallow mm -hmm. them whole now i'm not saying i'm not saying they were self-medicating but what we saw was a behavior that hadn't been recorded before in, in, in our collections. It had been recorded in the wild. And I think uh, Hoffman has actually seen that now in the in zoos in, in Japan. And it shows you there's, there's an awful lot we don't know about plant-animal yeah. interactions, which is exciting. And, and I think in my career, I had no idea when I came into horticulture, I was going to learn so much about animals and how they interacted with the plants around them. You also worked with animals at Windsor Great Park, establishing, you said you established grazing for longhorn cattle? Yeah, so I, in Windsor, anyone who knows Windsor, they'll know that it's, it's effectively, it's a wood pasture landscape, which mm. used to be an old hunting forest, going back to 1066 and all that. <laughs> and um, as a deer park, the, the, the deer were introduced, I think, in about 67 or 69 by the Duke of Edinburgh with, with working with the crown estate at that time and um but it was it's in a it's in a 600 acre part of it now there's mm -hmm. three and a half thousand hectares of land there and lots of the wood pasture or oak trees were not undergrazed they were being uh, mown using petrochemicals mm -hmm. and we wanted to try to establish a natural system and bill cathcart as my my boss and mentor and ted green who is one of the, one of the most amazing conservationists we we spoke together and ted said what you need is grazing animals and, and together we we enabled a project which introduced longhorn cattle we only started with six of them longhorn mm. cattle back which have the benefit of they not only graze between the oak trees oak trees don't grow naturally in woodland okay they uh, self-shade so they die back if they're un under anything else they actually grow in open grazed land and so they need grazing yeah also bracken is the other problem you get in open grazed landscapes without grazing because um it needs the animal hooves to bruise the bracken which decreases the vigor of it and vitality 
and in increases the open nature of the sward. So jays can plant their acorns, forget where they've grown, and another tree can get away. <laughs> yeah. They usually plant them at the protection of thorns. So you get this little haloing effect around the oak tree that then grows up in a landscape and becomes 300 years, 300 years, 300 years, you know, yeah. that type of scenario. So yeah. to, to, be, to be involved in a project that introduced grazing longhorn cattle back into Windsor Great Park, that's a sense of being part of a history that you know is going to be there for at least another thousand years. Mm. So that was quite an honour. And, and they're doing very well. We started with six. They've increased that. That was six on 60 acres. They've increased that now. And I believe it's a, it's seen as one of the an important conservation project. The beginning of the rewilding movement, if you read the work at NEP with Isabel Tree, mm. she dedicates the whole first chapter to her meeting Ted and him talking about them doing this same work. Well, that work was based on the work that we started at Windsor Great Park. And the whole rewilding movement has come from that. Yeah, re rewilding, as I understand it, is increasingly popular. Oh, gosh, yeah. I mean, it's now the big, you know, and it's not without controversy mm. because, you know, do we need to rewild or do we need to repopulate and rewild? Is rewilding to the exclusion of people in our highland landscapes where I find myself now in Scotland? Mm. Or do we go back to a time that actually most people lived in rural landscapes, not urban landscapes, and actually part of their living in relationship with land was much more sustainable than we currently do, where we, we leave a few farmers to use petrochemicals to grow the food for the rest of us in, in our hungry cities which doesn't seem to be working that well <laughs> that's a controversial discussion for someone else so we've spoken about gardens as never really being finished but I guess that they could arguably be abandoned have you ever experienced that yeah I, again I'm lucky if within my journey I, I think effectively the first half I was under some great mentors and I must give a shout out here to Dr Peter Alderson at Nottingham University at Sutton Bonington who mm. during one of our projects took us to see an abandoned garden associated with the local church where the vicar had left who was vacated he'd been watching studying how nature reclaims a garden and you know when I first went to see it because I was really interested in creating landscapes mm. and here he was taking us to degrading decaying landscape but the beauty in seeing a camellia shrub in amongst a lawn which is being put over the wildflowers and watching the bumblebees go from the wildflowers mm -hmm. up, up to these uh, non-native plants and then realising that the ecology of a garden and our role in directing nature towards a goal, a visual goal very often within gardens, but then letting that go and watching nature do its own thing mm. is actually an amazing, an amazing, that was an amazing time in my life again, just to help me stop, yeah. to think rather than to rush down the road and feel I need to intervene. So this thing about management, it's okay to not do something. Yeah. And actually to learn from that experience as much as it is to to intervene and underpick it. In fact, we could only learn about systems, natural systems, when we let them break and then try to understand what it is that's broken. So it was the, one of the best learning experiences I've had, actually. And one of the topics that I'm interested in for this podcast is about what people keep private and what they make public and of course some people are lucky enough to have private gardens and we also have big public gardens like the ones that you've worked in do you think that both are important to have yes it's the simple answer and the expanded answer would be that garden as a metaphor is is your version of heaven on earth mm. 
There's something personal about it. And public gardens, although I can lead a public garden for an institution, I never own it. Their connection is always one as a steward and lets me forget because if I try to make that my own personal life's work, my masterpiece, mm. then the more for me because someone will only change it in the future. So there's, you've got to have an arm's distance. So I would think in, whether it's a windowsill, whether it's an indoor mm. space that you create your garden and more, more people are finding that, in you know, indoor horticulture mm. is finding its place or whether that you're lucky enough to have a garden and you create that space. For yourself, I think there is a personal connection with that caring for something, mm. enjoying it, and then also it giving back, both visually and sensually, the experience of caring for another. Mm. Yeah, I sympathise. I do love houseplants, but I do always manage to kill them as well somehow. <laughs> you probably overwater them. That's what most people Probably. Do. I yeah. think I do, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's my common answer. Um, so I have a really frivolous question to finish, for which I apologise in advance. But do you have a favourite type of plant? Yeah, you know I get asked that quite a lot. I actually. know you do, yeah. <laughs> it, it depends. I mean, it changes, if yeah. I'm all honest. The one that stayed with me is, again, it's, uh, we, we attach characters to plants, don't we? And I can remember my, my mum always saying that she had all her relatives around her, even though she'd moved away from Cornwall. Mm. And she was one of the first of a, a you know, family of 10 to move away. But she'd taken a plant from everyone to grow in her garden. So there's something around them. And so there's the plant that I've got is, is a plant called Betula allegaliensis. And mm-hmm. I first saw it in Peebles, at, at one of the Royal Botanic Garden satellite sites. Yeah. And it was a time where I'd met David Knott, who was the curator there. And I was a young horticulturalist on a pilgrimage to these great gardens in Scotland. Can you imagine that? <laughs> a young guy. And I came across this great plant hunter of modern times, a bearded guy, slightly rotund in face, but physical, his presence and his authority. And he came up to me, didn't know who I was, didn't know where I'd come from, mm. and started explaining that the Allegaliensis betula was the the yellow birch found in the Allegaliensis Mountains in, in the east of North America. He told me not only where it grew, he told me where he collected it. He told me um, who had first found it in the wild. And then he went away. <laughs> and um, I was left in awe enjoying the rest of that garden. It was one of those moments where the hair still stands up mm. on the back of my head. Because that day he shared with something with me which was both personal. You know, it was my experience, my intimacy with mm. him. Uh, and yet he didn't expect anything in return. And yet years later with colleagues, he, <laughs> he actually mentored one of the projects I was involved in when I was managing InVU up in the northwest of Scotland and came back and he trained at InVU so we could close a loop together and I could feel I'd somehow you know, return that debtness that I had to him of, mm. of being an inspiration in a time in my life where I was beginning my career and he was in mid-flow as good as it gets. That's a really lovely answer to a really terrible question. So thank you. For that. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for asking it and for giving me this opportunity to, to share with you. It's not very often we talk about not finishing things. And I think it's quite important to people to know that it's OK to not finish them and actually be part of a journey that you at different times hand that baton over to other people.